0: I'm Ben Horton.
1: And I'm Agnes Frimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents from Chatham House. Hi, Ben.
0: Hi, Agnes. Welcome back. Welcome back. I don't know why I'm welcoming you back. Welcome, everyone. Where, yeah, welcome back, everybody. <laughs> The second episode. <laughs> the of second episode of the second series. We have had
1: some feedback about mm. the numbering.
0: Yeah, yeah, apologies for that. Um, there but... was a bit of consternation, wasn't there? Was last week episode one or episode 25?
1: It's difficult. I think you were right. I think it's series two, episode one, but. We have had feedback.
0: I think I was right too, but I've folded.
1: Yeah. We like (laughs) I'm glad that both
0: of us think I'm right and yet both of us recommended that we (laughs) that we like probably reconsider compromise. That's all right, yeah, but you've got to give the people what they want and what they want is episode twenty six of the podcast, (laughs) not episode two. So that's fair enough. Look. I just thought we might do it year by year, season by season, but no, we're doing continuous Oh, we actually? Good. Onwards and upwards, 26.
1: Okay, perfect. Brilliant. Lovely. We've had a good week, haven't we, planning?
0: Oh, so many plans. Yeah. I love a good plan. Don't you love a plan?
1: I do love a plan.
0: I think if I could spend most of my job planning to do stuff.
1: <laughs> Rather than actually I'd doing it. I'd love that so much. Yeah. Coming up with ideas of things to do. Exactly. Oh, yeah. What if we could do that? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's brilliant. Huh? But, yeah. But we've got plans for the centenary, haven't we? Yeah.
0: Centenary celebrations and uh, and general, general...
1: Centenary? Centenary? I
0: think it's one of those ones where you won't get judged either way.
1: Yeah. Hopefully. Unlike, as we discovered, some of our American colleagues and how they pronounce the word B-U-O-Y. So, for me, then, that's boy. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously. North America. It is, wait for it, buoy.
0: Yeah, they're bad people. <laughs> buoy Oh, buoy. Doesn't even make sense, does it? Like, <laughs> since when is an O an E sound?
1: I would also like to shout out to a friend who will remain nameless, but is French and doesn't listen to this, that's so fine, um, who thought that the word womb actually rhymed with bomb. <laughs> so she described it as a wom, <laughs> <laughs> Which still makes me oh, laugh. Oh, accents today.
0: are great. There was also a bit of discrepancy around how we, uh, how we pronounce hegemony.
1: Oh, really? Yes, Why? absolutely.
0: What? Following John Mearsheimer's excellent interview last week, there Did were lots he say of people hegemony? that said. Well, he said. I, I'm going to get it the wrong way around. Hegemony. Now. He said hegemony. Yeah. No, hegemony. Yeah. Hegemony, which apparently is the American way, which is also the way I say it, not hegemony okay hegemony
1: gosh it's like lieutenant and lieutenant because
0: then it's is it hegemonic or is it hegemonic which obviously it isn't no, so hegemonic is the right thing to say
1: that's part of my degree are you the hegemon i wrote a 2000 word essay once on anti-penultimate stresses in the uk in the english language really I was a cool kid
0: yep. wow that sounds like such a riveting course <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, 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 just yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what Do was you want the to know about that, that or essay? which as a rel-
1: relativizer in a sentence, Ben? Yes, I, I do. I do. All right. And um, what was the takeaway? Anti pronouncement stress. It's about British versus US. Like, do we do that more than the we US? We tend to do it more than the US. Okay, yeah. okay that's
0: good to know. All right. Maybe we need a pod on that. <laughs> that <laughs> oh, don't get me started on language. To. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, today, though, what have we got going on today, Ben? We've
0: got some cracking interviews.
1: <laughs> awesome. We do. Really
0: good. Really good. I spoke to Cherry from our Asia Pacific program,
1: who has been on the podcast before. Friend
0: of the pod. Yeah. So she's the China research fellow and we decided in the week of Chinese New Year, Mm -hmm. Happy Chinese New Year, Agnes. Thank you. um, That we would talk about China's economy and why it's having such a massive impact on the world and how it works and whether it's slowing down and whether we should be worried about that and what can be done.
1: And it's quite a big year for China, isn't it? Really?
0: Big year for China. Yeah. Um, And it's, do you know what animal it is? Pig? Year of the pig. Do you know what that means?
1: It's. I know that it's very good for rabbits, and I'm a rabbit.
0: Oh, okay. Why? Well, it's great. It's prosperity. It's the year of prosperity.
1: Okay, good. So we're yeah. going to rake it in, are we, then? Well, you are. I am. Yes. I think I'm a dog. Oh, are you? You're the dog. I'm sorry.
0: Yeah, I know, but I am six years younger.
1: <laughs>
0: so I don't know. Does that balance, does that balance out? <laughs> like, <I'm...
1: laughs> um, um, Cherry, also a very big opera buff.
0: Opera buff indeed. Yeah. yeah, that's true. That's true. And we went to the opera this week, didn't we? We did. We went to yeah. see
1: Catch a Cabanova Yeah, which is
0: uh, niche. niche. I cried. I think it'd be fair to say niche. <laughs> I yeah,
1: I got a bit sad. It was so beautiful.
0: Um. So yeah. So so that was my interview. But who did you speak to?
1: I spoke to David Waring, who um has written a new book called Anglo Arabia: Why Gulf Wealth Matters to Britain, and he's a teaching fellow in international relations at Royal Holloway. University of London and we had a chat about the gulf and the UK and where that relationship comes from and where's it where it's going and what the problems are and it's really interesting wicked so should we have a listen let's have a listen
0: okay so now I'm joined by Yuji, who is the China research fellow at our Asia-Pacific programme here at Chatham House, and can also be found teaching at the London School of Economics. Uh, And her recent article in The Excellent magazine, which is The World Today, Agnes will be happy I mentioned, um, is titled Marks and Spenders. (laughs) An excellent title. (laughs) An excellent title. Um, And uh, it's an examination of um, what's going on currently in the Chinese economy. Um, And... It's a good time to be talking about China's economy as it is the week of Chinese New Year. So Happy New Year to you.
2: Happy New Year, Ben.
0: Um, What did you get up to?
2: Oh, um, I had a good party. And also I received a present of how to make a cocktail. Ah. And because I was drinking cocktail with a friend of mine and I never really know how to make it. And then finally there's a book given to me and then I'm going to make him cocktail next time.
0: Excellent. And what's the cocktail of choice?
2: Uh, the Year of Plenty oh. and the Year of Prosperity.
0: Aha. Okay. <laughs> Intriguing. Excellent. Well, one of the major news stories that's uh, kind of been out in sort of business circles in 2019 has been this ongoing tension between the US and China in terms of trade and general economics. And also, uh, to put a kind of personal spin on it, there has been the this controversy over various people that run Huawei, the mm-hmm. the mobile tech giant from China. So I thought now would be a really, really interesting time to just do a bit of a primer almost on the Chinese economy and how it's structured and why it has such a significant influence on the global economy today. Sure. So let's just take it right back to the start of modern Chinese mm. economic history Could you just tell us a bit about how the Chinese economy developed in the 20th century?
2: Well, that's a very big question. Um, (laughs) Actually, it was the foreigners, like the British and Americans and the Europeans, introduced China about modern economy, you know, the way how demand and supply should be organized and should be distributed. But in particular, what I'd like to emphasize in here is since the establishment of the People's Republic of China or Communist China, and we had various economic models, and either a state-led economy or private enterprises. But at the end of the day, what, I've, what we have seen so far is an economy very much based on state intervention, state-led, uh, state planning. Mm-hmm. So it's not a market economy as China claims itself supposed to be. And interestingly, what I found in numbers now I start with my, my all my years of the milestones of the Chinese economy. Now, nineteen forty nine is the establishment of the People's Republic of China and that's where the state led Soviet Union style planned economy began. And nineteen fifty nine, we had the grid leap forward and again is a slave planned economy with steel production, something concentrated, and with the steel production and aluminium production very much in favour by the regime. And then 20 years after, we had Deng Xiaoping introduced so-called capitalist capitalist style of economic reform and opening up. Mm-hmm. So the market has to decide what would be the best for the national economy.
0: And what was the reason behind that shift? Why did he... Decide to do that at that time.
2: The shift was because not just the 10 years, uh, turbulent years of cultural revolution, but also because of what I mentioned earlier, the great leap forward Mm -hmm. 1959. And we have only produced, only developed one single industry, which is a steel industry. Yes. And therefore, this has made the economy in a very vulnerable position. And the entire country has no any... Manufacturing capabilities at all, mm. almost like a Soviet Union, you know, incapable of producing anything you can use for everyday life. And therefore, Deng Xiaoping finally decided if we are going to make a living or make the population have some pocket money, and the best way to start is to start to introduce a new economic system. Now, this, this is only so far. 79 is a positive story, but 10 years after, it's a uh, what I call it, the darkest hour of mm. the China's Con- Communist Party in the modern history, because we had a Tiananmen. And therefore, most of the foreign powers, or most of the Western powers, which offered China economic assistance from 1979 up to 1989, stopped. Could so, you just
0: remind us what happened at Tiananmen Square there?
2: Well, students and workers felt the political system somehow... Didn't work in their favor, mm-hmm. and therefore they required to have a, a alternative political system, and it's also mirrored what happened in the Soviet Union in
0: 1989. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: right. And then obviously China entering the stage of economic isolation. Then gradually, because of the sheer size of the economy, 1999, the United States and the European Union finally agreed China should become a member, a full member of WTO, the World Trade Organization, mm-hmm. which for many Chinese considering that's a historical milestone for China reintroduced reintroduce itself to the so-called international order. And then 10 years after, during that time, we had a economic financial crisis in 2008. And what Chinese government did, and Chinese government offered a 4 trillion RMB stimulus package mm. based on infrastructure investments, state-led investments emphasize very much on stay-owned enterprises in order to make sure everyone has a job, to keep people employed, basically. Yes. Yeah. To produce a sense of political stability. But then the problem also piling up with the shadow banking, with the over industrial overcapacity. So ten years ten years after, we're now having this uh, uh, economic slowdown. And I think part of the reason why we have the economic slowdown is because we have to consume that 4 trillion left over 10 years ago, and we're still bearing the really bitter fruit of that 4 trillion economic stimulus package. So all the years ended with nine since 1949 is an economic milestone of the Chinese economy.
0: Obviously, you mentioned at the start a lot of the, the roots of the Chinese economy were built on heavy industrial production, like steel production. Sure. Is that still? the basis of the Chinese economy today? Or has it moved more into kind of services? Or where, where are we, like, what what is the basis for?
2: Right. The current basis of the Chinese economy is, as I said earlier, is actually established after 1989. It is very much low-valued added manufacturing, production-driven. Right. And based on export. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, that
0: made-in-China that's the Every, exactly China has been the Everywhere, all over factory. the world, yes. Yeah, that's mm-hmm.
2: China has been the world factory and produced, apparently, 80% of the manufacturing goods. Just think about the white goods. For example, television. Mm-hmm. 95% of television in the world, consumed in this part of the world, are produced and made in China. Really? 90 wow. 90% of fridge are made in China. Wow. And yeah. 99% of the ball pens you're using are also made in China. So that's just to show you the share scale of the economy. But nevertheless, the state also somehow developed a very vibrant private economy, precisely because of the manufacturing-driven model, and therefore in the smaller private enterprises and employ a large number of people. So we have 85% of the total employment within the Chinese economy are made up by the private enterprises. Mm -hmm. But interestingly... Even though the private enterprises, because of its share scale, is not as decisive as the state-owned enterprises in here. Mm-hmm. Because the state-owned owned enterprises in China control most of the strategic sensitive sectors, such as oil, mm-hmm. mining, telecom, banking, and shipbuilding. So all the kind of like top strategic asset sector yeah. are state control. And those stay-owned enterprises, they're not just companies. They're also political and social institutions. They serve a function to provide a sense of social welfare for their own employee. Mm. I mean, I grew up in a family, parents working for stay-owned enterprises. So I go to the kindergarten from the company. I attend the school from the company as well. Mm. So it's like a small, miniature society in itself.
0: Yeah, yeah. So interesting. And so, I mean, obviously, we just spoke about the "made in China" and mm. the "factory of the world" um, idea. But is the Chinese economy relatively sort of self-sustaining? Like, is it so big now that it's it's its own kind of internal economy that is is a serious like factor, or is it very much reliant on that trade, that export trade?
2: Put in this way, I think the Chinese economy nowadays for the world is too big to fail. Right. Because it's a shared size, and it's also that sense of interdependence between mm-hmm. China and the world. Yeah. Not just China as a con- as a production power, but also China as a consuming power. Mm. Just think about the recent news with uh, Jaguar Land Rover shut down the factories in China, partially because the Chinese consumer stopped buying the cars. Yes. And then this has enormous ripple effects with all sectors of the economy. So we are in that stage of everything all got entangled. And also, on the other hand, we have this very extensive financial service sector in China and linked up with all the stock exchange around the world. And even in London, given where we are sitting now, we're talking about pairing between the London Stock Exchange together with Shanghai Stock Exchange. Mm-hmm. So you show the inter intertwines of the, the world economy and the Chinese economy.
0: Okay, so if, if the Chinese economy slows down, then that has very serious implications for the rest of the world.
2: For the world, but yeah. also for the Chinese Communist Party, for the Chinese political right. elites themselves, because that's how their own legitimacy, that's part of the key elements of the Chinese Communist Party's legitimacy Mm -hmm. by providing a a reasonable living standard to its own population without letting its own population questioning about the political values Mm -hmm. and the various freedoms we enjoy in this part of the world.
0: Mm -hmm. Often there are accusations from outside of China that in some way, the statistics, the data on the Chinese economy is in some way kind of Doctored or presented in a more positive light than is actually accurate. Mm. What's your take on that? Is that do you think that's something that is happening, or do you? And is it part of that kind of uh, imperative to ensure that social contract is maintained that Chinese or the Chinese government always has to tell a good news story, mm. or are, are people overemphasizing this?
2: I think a part of story in here is that numbers can't tell us everything. Right. What we can see or what we can see from the ordinary Chinese population is how much more income I've received per month. Mm-hmm. And what will the property price looks like in the next five years? Something more tangible. And that is what the government trying to do. Firstly, the government intend to do is firstly to curbing the property price do not go out of the roof. Because at the moment, the average property in China is 45 times more than the annual income of per household. Which is rather alarming. Yes. Yep. And secondly, President Xi, in 19th Party Congress, he was talking about how the Chinese economy current model has run out of steam and therefore require a different economic development model, which is driven by qualitative and sustainable growth with lower GDP. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I think part of the story of the Chinese economic slowdown, it is because of the government had to decisively to decide, now, this is a time, really, to let the economy slowing down but with a better sense of resilience yes. and also with more a diversified economy rather than just solely relying on manufacturing low-valued added products.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, I just wanted to talk a bit mm-hmm. about what the economic policy has been under President Xi. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, a few years ago, he launched this Made in China 2025 Strategy. Could you just tell us a bit about what that strategy is aiming to do and whether or not it's been successful?
2: Sure. Um, Made in China 2025 really aims to achieve China's eventual economic transformation from low-cost manufacturing hinterland to make China become a great innovative power. And then this is probably the priority for President Xi and his comrade. And then Beijing has set up 10 strategically and technological Technologically important sectors um, to enable China to achieve those cutting-edge technology, which would jump ahead mm. of the United States and many other advanced economies. So these sectors, including information technology, biotechnology, aerospace and defense, the telecoms, including the five G, we probably perhaps discuss uh, discuss later, and also uh, electric vehicles. So these are in the certain areas where Americans used to have a monopoly and China wants to challenge that monopoly. Mm -hmm. And that's Made in China 2025. And that's really part of the catalyst for the current round of China-U.S. trade war. And then so far, the Chinese government has spent 1.5 billion U.S. dollars in order to pursue this Made in China 2025 initiative.
0: And as you mentioned, the trade war, it's not going well? Or is that a sign that actually it is going well and the US are having to respond?
2: I think the trade war, the disputes are two layers. First layer, in the very simple terms, is is about tariff. It's about the trade imbalance between China and the United States. It's because of the consumption pattern in two countries are very different. But that's only scratching the surface. Now, the root cause for this current round of trade war uh, for two reasons. Firstly, it's made in China 2025. China intended to challenge the technology monopoly of the United States. And secondly, I think it's to do with the Chinese state behavior or the party's behavior in determining the economic activities inside China. And that's perhaps something where the United States found deeply uncomfortable about it. Because we're talking... uh, Country or the party will be able to dictate latest telecom technology, mm. be able to dictate how do you, where your drone would fly, and the party will be able to collect your data through robots. And this sounds very alarming. An authoritarian regime
0: it is to own all,
2: <laughs> all those technologies yeah. and apply in a different ways. Yeah. So that's a concern for the United States and. The second concern for the United States is on the intellectual property rights. Mm-hmm. And there has been a long complaint about China's practice in the IPR, intellectual property rights, right. and has not really been followed what WTO is supposed to do. Mm-hmm.
0: Could you talk a little bit about uh, about that, actually, is this intellectual property right? Is mm-hmm. it just that um, China has a different approach to the idea of intellectual property, or are they just ignoring the rules?
2: <laughs> uh well, I think the root causes are two. Firstly, um, certain Chinese provincial government, not central government. The central government has always been very clear they would like to protect the intellectual property rights of foreign firms which invested in China. But the provincial governments are uh, intended to developing its own industrial policies mm. and therefore they have to bypassing the orders made by central government and to acquire those technologies and therefore made the foreign companies whoever invested in that province to do the forced technology transfer so this has really frustrated many foreign investors inside China um so this is one thing now secondly, it is also because this whole notion of rule of law does not always be you know, does not exist in China even. Because if we're talking about rule of law, it's not just about in a, at a grand level of constitutional mm. rule of law, but it's also down to commercial level rule of law, how the corporate contract should be drawn and how the technology transfer should be abide, and what kind of regulation they would offer if, is, if there is a technology transfer. So I think two reasons. One is because the technical reasons, the Chinese government want to jump the way ahead. And secondly, is also lack of respect and rule of law.
3: Mm
0: -hmm. Okay, yeah. And it's interesting, this kind of technological competition, Mm. coming back to that between the US and China, it's almost as though China's economy has grown so powerful that it doesn't need to kind of mandate that. It's almost like the US companies will almost come to them. So I I was just thinking, I mean, I don't know if this is accurate, but Mm. I was thinking of uh, the recent case where it was revealed that Google was working mm. with Chinese tech providers on a specific version of their search engine which does not have the protections mm. around people's data mm. and that they were kind of creating something that could be used within the Chinese walled garden mm. of their mm. uh, of their internet. Mm. So it's almost as though because of economic necessity, these companies, if they want to continue to make money, they have to court the Chinese system and have to adapt themselves mm. to it. So that's almost happening organically without without it, it being driven.
2: It happened organically um, in the early 90s. Okay. So put in this way, in the early 90s, most of the major predominant Fortune top 500 um, multinational companies who wanted to invest in China, mm. and it happened organically because China is such a vast domestic market. Absolutely. And also that time, the Chinese companies by no way could compete. With those foreign companies, and therefore, the government, in order to attract foreign investments, they have offered much favorable condition to those Western companies. Right. But then, after fifteen years, the Chinese companies shifted itself from the pupil of the Chinese, uh, sorry, of the Western companies, into the share competitors of those Western companies, both at home Chinese market, but also at overseas market. And therefore, in order to support its own Chinese companies, the government have to issue certain criteria to protect its own company. So in a way, this is not how market, co- market economy should operate. But nevertheless, it's a, a way of cultivating national champion of the chi- so-called China brand or to transfer China from a country which is made in China into invented in China.
0: Okay, yeah, well, so we're reaching nearish the end, but let's talk about that Huawei um, spat in a bit more detail then. So could you just tell us the background to that um, story?
2: Well, the story began with, in early December, the, uh, I think it's one of the senior executives of Huawei, um, who is also the daughter of the founder of the company, was captured by the Canadian government under the request of US officials because Huawei the company breached the um, code of conduct for the Iranian sanction.
0: Ah, okay.
2: And obviously the United States authorities have found sufficient evidence to call our arrest. And then in as a way of tit for tat, what Chinese government did is Chinese government captured two Canadians uh, one is a formal diplomat, and another one is a businessman, and on the seemingly allegedly claim of national security threat. And nobody knows, because none of us would have the access to the document, would be able to see the evidence for it. So the spats going on and on, and Canada at the moment, under enormous pressure from the United States, try to extradise uh, Mrs. Meng, mm. who you know being captured in the early December. Okay. So that's a very much a uh, firstly a diplomatic row and secondly is a, a side story of the ongoing US-China trade war.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. And and yet you think that actually the root of that story is is in this attempt to kind of clip the wings of Huawei. Um, is, is the pretext the Iranian sanction violation, or do you think that's all the story is?
2: I think it's the bellwether <laughs> on what is to come for mm-hmm. the uh, US-China trade war or for a longer-term competition between the two, gri- two great powers. Mm. I mean, to have terrorism attack or fighting terrorism, that's a short-term concern. But the real longer-term concern is the great power competition. And now the front line of the competition has shifted from geopolitics and geoeconomics into technology.
0: And so what's in it for China to respond to the Canadian action in that sort of tit-for-tat way? Why would What would be their motivation for doing that?
2: The Canadian government directly challenged the twin elements of the Chinese Communist Party's legitimacy. One element is the governing capacity of the Chinese Communist Party. So if we're talking about indigenous innovation, if we're talking about 5G technology, we're talking about Made in China 2025, these are all the core industrial policies mm. practiced by the Chinese government and therefore by the Chinese Communist Party. And Huawei has been the poster child for this entire campaign of indigenous innovation. And of course the Chinese have felt they've been let down by the five I, so-called 5I countries. And then their leadership, their ability to govern the country, ability to pursue this strategy being challenged. So this is on the governance level. Now, the even deeper level, many Westerners would not be able to understand in here is the deeper cause of this very strong sense of nationalism Mm. inside China, and therefore require the government and the party to behave in a certain way. Because ultimately, one of the legitimacy of the Communist Party is to make sure the Chinese people will not be bullied again, like what happened in the last 150 years. Mm-hmm. And that narrative has a very strong currency inside China. So the government have to behave in a certain way to, to fit back its own domestic audience by saying, look, we're also being very tough with the foreigners, with the Canadians, and therefore we captured two Canadians to do a tit-for-tat in exchange for the release of the Huawei executive. Mm -hmm. And that is directly to answer the domestic constituency Xi Jinping has. And that seems to be somehow uh, not really picked up by the Western governments and also by the Western media in here.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. I think uh, too often there's Mm -hmm. an assumption that because of the system of government in China, that actually Chinese politicians don't Mm -hmm. feel under pressure from from their population. Because they're not directly democratically accountable to them. But actually, there are, the dynamics are still at play, aren't they? Mm.
2: There are certain unspoken rules yeah. between the party and its own population. Mm-hmm. So to sh- to play tough internationally is part of the behaviour the Chinese population expects its own regime to behave so. And that's why we have we end up in no scenario where we are now.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much for explaining all of that. It was really interesting.
2: Great, fantastic.
1: So today I'm joined by David Waring, who is a teaching fellow in international relations at Royal Holloway, University of London, and author of a new book published by Polity called Anglo-Arabia. Why Gulf Wealth Matters in Britain. Thank you so much for coming to join us. No problem. So, why did you write this book now?
3: Um, <laughs> if I could have predicted what would have been happening at the time I'd have written, I'd, you know, at the time the book was published, and I'd definitely have written the book, I couldn't have predicted the extent to which. It's a, such a big story now, that British yeah. relationship, Saudi Arabia and the Gulf States. At the time I started researching it, um, beginning of my PhD, it was a little bit after uh, the Arab uprisings happened. Right. And I was really interested by the fact that, because I have this sort of childhood memory of 1989 and how exciting it was when all those regimes fell. Mm-hmm. And early 2011 felt fingers crossed. It didn't work out that way. But at the time, it felt like it could be a replay of that. And I was really interested in the fact that in this instance, not in every case, but in most cases the people were rising up against regimes that were backed by us and armed by us. Um, so why were we, the West, on a different side in this particular dynamic? And, I mean, it's not a new story that the West arms um, and backs authoritarian regimes, that goes way back. But I wanted to understand specifically what was at stake, and I wanted to focus on the Gulf regimes in particular, because they seem to me to be the kind of centre of Middle East counter-revolution and also the, really the strategic heart of, British and Western interests in the Middle East. Um, so, yeah, I, my, I, was trying to, um, I was trying to understand the roots of that relationship. And it was only after that that things like Yemen, the war in Yemen occurred, and then did the, the issue gain more kind of salience.
1: I mean, there's so much to talk about in that. But mm. what I wanted to ask was these, they're, they're, they're very new states in many ways, yeah, the yeah, Gulf. Yeah. How did Britain's relationship with the Gulf states start?
3: Yeah, I mean it was there before the States in, in in many ways. Um, so Britain comes into that part of the world in the late seventeen, early eighteen hundreds originally. Um and this is long before oil emerges as a big strategic and material prize. At that point Britain's trying to sort of um, defend its subcontinental empire from the Russians and the French. And it's trying to create this kind of buffer zone, um, Sort of great game in Central Asia is part of that, and Britain projecting uh, military power into the Gulf and southern Iran is part of that as well. So it develops these kind of trucial relationships with the various Emirates and, and kingdoms, and they become client states of the British. Um, Saudi Arabia um, is created much later on in the early twentieth century. But as these states um, emerge and they consolidate their power and entrench their rule partly through um, the relationship of the British and British assistance, British provision of arms or British protection, Um, especially the creation of Saudi Arabia. At that time, the British are helping them to consolidate their role and put down challenges by providing arms and uh, economic support. Um, Then if you kind of fast forward, you've got the uh, discovery of oil, the emergence of oil as kind of the lifeblood of the world economy.
1: When would you say that was?
3: Well, I mean...
1: Roughly.
3: So, the emergence of Middle East and particularly oil in the Gulf region as a really, really obviously strategically important resource happens in the very early 20th century. Mm-hmm. So, Winston Churchill switches the Royal Navy from, from coal to oil, um, I think before the, before the First World War. Um, so, it's already well known mm. that you've got this really valuable, perhaps more efficient fuel source. Um, and then there's a lot, and there's a lot of it, and it's in an area where Britain's quite powerful. And in that, some, those subsequent decades, um, these states again consolidate their rule, build themselves up, and the British are there through the whole process of state formation, ensuring that these authoritarian regimes stay in place and they can fend off challenges from Arab nationalists um, and other forces from below. Then if you, um, I'm skipping quite quickly through yeah, the history no, here. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of history. Yeah, there is, there is. <laughs> So we get to the early 70s. Britain has been, through the 50s and 60s, kind of eased out of the rest of the Middle East through, you know, uh, Arab nationalists pushing them out of, like, you know, Egypt, Iraq, Aden. And the British pretty much decided of the 60s, the game's up, we can't afford this anymore. And so there's this withdrawal from, quote-unquote, east of Suez, which means the British will no longer be the hegemon in the Persian Gulf. And at that point, the Gulf states are panicked because the British were their protectors, and what, who's going to protect them now from Arab nationalists and you know their people and all the rest of it. Um, and what the British do is leave advisors and continue a certain kind of relationship, even though it's not a dominance of the, middle, of, the of the of the Gulf. Um, they're still leaving advisors in the various governments, training the security forces, providing arms, and all the rest of it. And just after that you've got the oil crisis, so mm-hmm. suddenly these states have a huge windfall just after quote-unquote independence, They've got all this money to spend, and again the British are there to help these states develop. So all the way through the process of state formation, the British are there helping a particular social force within these societies, these authoritarian monarchs, entrench and consolidate their rule against Arab nationalists, against more independent forces.
1: And I mean, currently, we'll we'll get on to this, but the UK, particularly Saudi relationship Mm. is sort of um, increasingly scrutinised and and judged by lots of people in the UK. Was that the case before? Or is this quite new? This sort of like quandary, slight moral quandary over that relationship?
3: Yeah, Um, that's a good question. It's not so, I didn't look at so much in writing the book at the level of dissent, and perhaps that would have been an interesting thing. I mean, I've worked with uh, campaign against arms trade, and and used they've got this huge archive of old press cuttings, mm. which I've <laughs> read the whole thing now, and um, they've been going since the nineteen sixties. So there has been, you know, dissent from like British pacifists, for example, yeah. um, in terms of the arms sales. Um, but, yeah, in, in terms of scrutiny, thinking about all through the press coverage I've read over the decades that, um, I covered in the book, I think the current controversy is as much controversy as there's ever been in the modern era. Right. Um, Perhaps you can think back to the 90s and the stuff around corruption and mm-hmm. Jonathan Aiken, and all the rest of it. But I think, th- as far as I can tell, this is fairly unprecedented, the extent to which it's now bordering on a scandal.
1: Yeah. You know? And so, c- like coming up to the present day, what is Britain's economic relationship with the Gulf?
3: Mm. So this is really, really interesting, I think. If you look at the way in which the economic model that Britain has and the economic model that the Gulf states have, it, they're kind of, it, it's, it's bordering on symbiosis, the way they fit together. So you think about the route that um, the British economy has taken since um, since Thatcher came in, this kind of neoliberal period. where. Broadly speaking, you've got a decline in British export industry relative to the growth of financial services, and the result of that has been a growing current account deficit. Um, and how do you square that? You square that with um, importing capital, financial inflows, financing the deficit. Um, now at a similar time, not exactly, but a similar time, more from the 2000s onwards, the Gulf states have had this huge windfall from high oil prices. So oil prices were pretty flat in the 80s and 90s, but with the growth of China and India in particular, and the oil price shot up during the 2000s and right into the middle of the current decade. So these guys have had a huge windfall. So on the one hand, you've got us with our, frankly, chronic current account deficit. On the other hand, you've got them with these fantastic riches now. So if you look at Gulf sovereign wealth, it's enormous. It's talking about trillions of dollars, maybe $3 trillion or so. Um, of sovereign wealth and then private wealth matches that. It's just one of the biggest sources of capital in the world. Um, so on the one hand, yeah, you've got us with our current account deficit. Then with their capital surpluses, and a lot of that money is coming to us, helping to square our um, square the circle, as it were, financing our current account deficit through bank deposits, through um, purchase of equities, and um, and also providing Britain with that rare thing a um, a current account surplus, a trade surplus, with a geographical because most of the world Britain runs a trade deficit, mm. but with the Gulf area it runs a trade surplus. That's quite a precious thing for um, the health of British export industry, exports of goods and services.
1: And I mean, the thing that's most commented on is um, the fact that we sell them guns. Yeah. <laughs> um, is it just arms that we, or you know, is it broader? No, than no, that?
3: no. I mean, through the 2000s and particularly in this decade. Um, these states have been, I hate this word, development, but, um, they have, yeah, for want of a better word, for want of a less problematic word, they've been trying to develop their economies to build up infrastructure, um, build up and improve their education and health systems, um, and British exporters have been helping them do all these things. So there's all kinds of goods and services that have been provided, which are being sold, which are non-military. Um. And, yeah, military exports are not the whole story in economic terms. Mm. Um, I think we overplay that. Um, but, yeah, it is certainly part of the picture. But that, that's more of a strategic than an economic question, I would argue.
1: Okay. In what way?
3: Well, broadly speaking, I would say that the, one of the main strategic priorities of the British state in the context of um, being kind of usurped by America as the global dominant power... And the loss of empire, one of the big strategic priorities of the British state has been, been to retain its global status, mm-hmm. to be as powerful as possible for as long as possible after the loss of empire. And one of the ways you do that is by being a global military power, or at least that's the route that Britain's taken. To be a global military power, you have to have your own arms industry to the greatest extent possible. You don't want to be reliant on someone else for your arms. Right. Um, now, to, be a, to have an glo- arms industry can be costly, unless you're exporting. Mm -hmm. So when you produce, say, a fleet of military jets, which is, you know, one of the ways in which Britain projects power in in Libya and Syria and Iraq, it's really Eurofighter Typhoon, you can either produce a fleet for yourself and then mothball the production line, lay off all the workers, or you maintain those production lines by selling to other people, and the income you generate from that lowers the cost of your your military production or offsets the cost of it. Right. Now, who are you going to sell those arms to? Mm. If you look at um, the patterns of arms purchases worldwide since the Cold War, for Britain, the markets in the rest of the world have really declined relative to the relative to the Gulf market. So the Gulf market is still pretty buoyant to say the least they're st- still importing huge amounts of arms
1: but also you can't sell arms to your enemies yeah
3: quite yeah. right. so um, so what you end up with and there's a graph in the book loads of sexy graphs in my book and one of the um, graphs I like the most or is, I think it's most helpful is the one about where British arms go which mm-hmm. shows the, just a very steady decline for 25 years of British arms sales to parts of the world that are not the gulf and a very steady decline increase in exports to the Gulf to the point where it's now about half and half. Mm -hmm. And most of it in terms of value um, goes to the Saudis. And we're talking about it's not just, you know, I don't know, machine guns or this, that and the other. It's the big weapon systems that we're making for ourselves and we're also providing to them. Um, So petrodollars don't just buy our goods and services and give us an export um, uh, surplus with a certain part of the world. They don't just finance our current account deficit, they also sustain, or help to sustain, rather, the military industry that we need if we want to be, and that's a big if, but if we want to be a global military power going forward.
1: And, I mean, one could get into a moral discussion about the arms trade. Mm,
3: one should, I think. <laughs> yeah.
1: But I think the, the, the discourse around mm. it, specifically Saudi Arabia and, and the UK selling arms, has been something that we're not hugely comfortable with. Mm we can overlook it hmm. and then yemen happened and do you think there's been a switch since yemen do you, th- do you think that has changed the the sort of moral compromise element or do you think we're just becoming more aware of this stuff generally
3: um i think that's a good question i think it's raised the political cost to the british state of maintaining these relationships yeah um it was easier to you know, it's more likely that the public would forget about it or not pay attention to it, whereas now they are paying attention to it, close attention. And yeah, to some extent, I think there wasn't perhaps an expectation that these weapon systems would be sold and then they'd just gather dust. Mm. You know, I mean, the the time which t- is an
1: odd, an odd presumption, isn't it? Really, this sort yeah. of yeah, like, like that the equivalent of Victorians buying thousands of books and never cutting the pages. <laughs> you know, or we'll just have fighter jets on the shelf to look nice but we won't use them don't worry
3: well i mean it's part of the relationship they're sustaining the military industry that that we use in part to protect them so Mm. they get something out of it um you think about 1991 um when 1990, sorry saddam invades kuwait and is supposedly threatening saudi arabia they don't then fight back themselves and defend themselves with these fabulous weapon systems we've sold them you know we'd already sold them the lightning jets in the 60s the tornadoes in the 80s um, but when it came to it, uh, they needed the British and the Americans to bail them out. So I think not perhaps not many people expected them to act as an indip- I say independent military force, but act on their own initiative as a military force. But they have done now, and now we have to think about what the implications are for us. Because the, the really important thing that I think people don't fully appreciate is that it's not that we just sell them – we sold them some – um, jets in the past and now they're being used but it's too late because we sold them. The relationship we have is that we provide the jets, we provide and these, this is under a contract which says that we'll continue to provide ammunition, spare parts, training, all sorts of technical logistical support. Um, technical and logistical support. Philip Hammond, who's Foreign Secretary at the beginning of this war, said March 2015, we'll do everything short of engaging in combat to help the Saudis and that's what that that, that support effectively sustains this yeah. bombing campaign, you know. Um, without the British and American, ongoing practical assistance that's been provided throughout all these atrocities, throughout the last four years, you know, the bombs could not continue to be dropped, the missiles could not continue to be fired. So the, the degree of complexity is, is quite deep. Mm. And when you're talking about the world's worst humanitarian crisis, you're, you're beyond the point where you can... Just hope no one notices yeah. that you're back in these regimes. It's it's, it's too late for that.
1: And um, to you know to look at Saudi specifically, do you think that that change, that shift to people to them actually using the, the things that we've sold them, mm. is that with the new crown prince? You know, has that because Saudi's a really interesting one in that, you know, technically women can now drive. Mm. And that is seen, I think, by some in the West as great liberal progression. Mm. Whereas, actually, if you look at the campaign behind it yeah. and what's happened to people, yeah. um, it's very much not. Yeah, Equally, yeah. you know, now liberally people can go to the cinema, mm. but that's only because everybody's got 14 phones and they're watching films on their phone anyway. Mm, yeah, yeah. So I think that the West can sometimes look to him. Or before before Khashoggi, mm. I think the West were looking to him as a sort of very progressive. Mm you know stepping away from the clergy and um, influence and all of that sort of stuff i think that's shifted now <laughs> yeah potentially yeah um although i don't know what the impact of that will be but do you do you think it's because of him that these these things have changed or
3: there's a definite shift in style yeah governing style put aside the reform thing although let's come back to that because that's very interesting um in, in geopolitical terms they're much more assertive much more aggressive yeah um Without personalising it too much, that may have to do with the immaturity of the guy as well as his just a general personality. Someone who's used to getting his own way. Right. Okay. But th- there's just been a series of aggressive misjudgments with mm. regard to Qatar, with regard to the Lebanese Prime Minister, yeah. with regard to Yemen, with regard to Khashoggi. Um,
1: Would you maybe briefly explain to our listeners who aren't <laughs> experts <laughs> on the region what you mean by the Lebanese Prime Minister?
3: Um, so. We're going by media reporting, but as far as we're aware, Lebanese Prime Minister, um, because the Saudis are unhappy that he might be making too many compromises with Hezbollah, mm-hmm. who are, it's just a fact, part of Lebanese society and yep. not a part of Lebanese society, that the Lebanese Prime Minister can just wish away. But the Saudis aren't happy with the Lebanese Prime Minister dealing with them in the way that he was, so they invite him over to Saudi, whereupon, according to the press reports... They take his, phone, off, take his phones off him, take him off to a secure location, intimidate him a little bit, and force him to res- resign on TV. Um, so it's effectively a kind of kidnapping. Yeah. Now, eventually it's negotiated that he goes back and he carries on as before, and they've just formed a new government, the Lebanese and Hezbollah have got a big um, presence in it, as was inevitable. So it's one of these, it, it's an aggressive, crude, and failed approach. Yeah. And I think you can that that's that's one example of that pattern which goes on and um, which which you notice in these other cases as well.
1: Yeah. I mean the the horrendous murder of, you know, was also a complete mess up. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it was so badly done. Yeah. It is a bit like they don't care.
3: I mean I guess if you if you brought up, you know, unimaginable wealth and absolute power it's you might struggle to realize that there are limits to what you can do and get away with but to be
1: fair what have the repercussions been internationally
3: um i think we'll we'll see how this plays out i think in terms of the vision 2030 the so-called you know the big reforms that that mbs the crown prince wanted to wanted to push through a lot of this requires foreign investment right high profile foreign investment And he's just made it much, much harder for Western firms to be associated with him. Now, he'll still get interest in the oil industry and he'll still get interest in, you know, lending the Saudi state money. But in terms of the big entertainment firms and, you know, general... In investment from firms who have a high profile in the Western market, those firms are going to be thinking there's a Saudi market which looks lucrative and then there's our markets and our customers in Western Europe and North America and do we want to destroy our reputation in North America and Europe just to get a piece of the Saudi market? Mm. He's he's made himself toxic and he's made his regime toxic yeah. and it's going to be very hard for the people he was trying to get in bed with to be associated with him Um We'll, we'll see the effect that, that that has.
1: Yeah. The sort of the, the UK-Golf relationship, uh, obviously it goes both ways, sort of financially and stuff. But there's also soft power element too, in that a lot of the Gulf come over to the UK mm. and go to school. Yeah. Or go to university yeah. or live here for a bit. Like, there is that sort of switch, isn't there? And... If you look at, say, wealthy Russians, there was a period when London was full of Russian money and Mm. Eastern European money and oligarchs, and we were actually okay with that. And then suddenly there was a slight cultural shift. Mm. Do you think that's going to happen with the Gulf?
3: Um, I think this is is hard to predict, so I'll try not to make a prediction. (laughs) But I think there is the fact that Britain's relationship with these states is much more deeply hardwired and entrenched in any relationship with Russia. Mm. Um, I think projecting power into the Gulf or helping our closest ally protect its power into the Gulf, the Americans, and supporting these regimes and attracting these petrodollars into our financial industry and into our arms industry is a relationship that's developed, as I detail in the book, over 200 years. Yeah. And unpicking that is difficult that being said, I think the political cost of it is rising. Mm-hmm. I think the commitment of the British public to Britain being a global military power and continuing to get involved in these increasing these sort of failed wars in the Middle East, the British public appetite for that is, is diminishing. Mm-hmm. I think the kind of neoliberal economic model that necessitates or partly necessitates those inflows is one that people are increasingly disillusioned with And if there's a pursuit of a genuine industrial strategy, that may change. I think the other thing that's really worth mentioning, and I always come very close to forgetting it, and then I remember at the last minute, but it's really quite important, is is climate change, Mm. where we've got 12 years, apparently, um, to deal with this, or it's going to turn extremely nasty. And dealing with it involves leaving the oil in the ground, Mm. or as much of it in the ground as possible. And... All of this, this whole relationship, as I've said, is, is predicated on our wealth. It's our wealth that's buying our arms. It's our wealth that's financing or helping to finance our current account deficit, and it's offsetting our trade deficit. And even if you like British neoliberalism financed by Gulf capital, and even if you like British militarism um, sort of funded by Gulf capital, Gulf arms purchases, the either the money dries up or the world's not going to be worth living in. Mm. So... In that sense, it goes beyond what your political preferences are and whether or not it's desirable um, and, and comes down to some quite harsh realities. So, you know, perhaps at this point, policymakers need to be thinking about how they make the shift rather than whether or not they want to.
1: Yeah. But I mean, like you say, this relationship, the, the, the British Gulf relationship, is, is so entrenched and, you know, started a very long time ago for different reasons. Mm. So, if at some point the oil does run out, or we have to, like you say, we have to stop taking it out of the ground. Mm. <laughs> Presumably we will still have an ally there who maybe will need us far more than ever. You know, can Britain just leg it at that point? Or do you think it might have to stay in that bit of the region to counterbalance whatever worries they might have from other other states?
3: I think what Britain's been doing in that part of the world fundamentally is protecting those regimes from their publics. Yeah, okay. I think that's what's been going on for the last hundred years or so. I think we, we particularly with regard to you know, the Arab uprisings especially in Bahrain yeah. where it's just as a, it, it's a fairly clear-cut case of a, what was full to talk of sectarianism right at the beginning in February March 2011 this was a broad-based non-sectarian perfectly peaceful and compared to the size of the population massive movement for democracy and it was just violently crushed mm. by security forces armed and trained by us and the Americans. Um, And what I think is going to be interesting if and when we as a species do the sensible thing and stop using oil and these countries run out of that revenue is what happens to those regimes. Mm. Um, Let's not pretend that every social force in the Gulf that's not the regimes is, is nice, but there might be hope for human rights defenders and Democrats in places like Bahrain, people who right now are jailed for life by these regimes and tortured, maybe they'll find that that obstacle that's been placed in front of them, the regimes, and behind them, us, mm. um, is less formidable because the oil world's gone. So we'll see how it plays out.
1: As a last question, and this is a tricky one, I apologise, what would you personally like to see Britain do with mm. this relationship?
3: Um, I would like to see Britain abide by its own rules on arms exports which say that we should not be selling arms where there's a serious risk that they might be used in violation of international law i don't know how the government have convinced themselves but they have that there isn't a serious risk that the arms might be used in violation of international law in yemen um if they stuck to that rule those planes wouldn't be flying those bombs wouldn't be falling and people Mm -hmm. would be living who are otherwise not living um, and I don't think they should be selling arms for use in internal repression, which is clearly what, um, that's that's the basic function of the Gulf Security Services, is internal repression. So stick by those rules and that would be something. I think more broadly, Britain should be thinking, needs to be thinking about having an industrial strategy that closes this trade deficit mm-hmm. and makes Britain, the British currency, less vulnerable. Um and if you can do those things, and if we can develop green technology and things like that as part of its industrial strategy, um, then we can have this transition to a low carbon future, and you know that can have the effects that we, that we talked about that we talked about before. I'm, I'm generally not a huge fan of, <laughs> of British neoliberalism and of British militarism. Um, so anything I recommend is going to be going in a direction of trying to dismantle those things.
1: (laughs) But, I mean, you could argue that Britain has such influence in that region Mm. that it could be using it in a different way.
3: Yeah, well, I'll put it this way. I don't see the British state as a benign force for good in the world, and so I don't think about it in terms of all the great things that Britain can do. I see it in terms of there are obstacles to processes of social contestation, processes of social contestation which in our country eventually resulted in democracy, but which in other countries have not got there, partly because there's been outside help for authoritarian forces.
1: Mm.
3: I think it would be enough for us simply to stop supporting some of the most authoritarian regimes in the world and then let the social contestation in those societies play out with the agency residing with the peoples of the region. Mm -hmm. and let them sort these things out and and, and take their countries in the direction that they want to. Rather than thinking of us as the agents of liberalism and democracy, which we're, you know, just hit record shows that we're not, at least in this part of the world, let's just step back, remove those obstacles or stop being an obstacle Mm -hmm. and let them work things out for themselves. I think that's the most positive thing we can do.
1: Excellent. Um, Well, thank you so much for coming to speak to us. Um, you can buy David's book soon. When is it out? It's out. It's out it's now. Okay, out, brilliant yeah. so I have an uncorrected proof so. You know. Um yep yeah, and it's Anglo-Arabia why Gulf wealth matters to Britain. Um yeah, thank you so much. Thank you.
0: Well that was a really fascinating interview.
1: If you're interested in more on Saudi Arabia there was a great interview that we did in the last series with Jane Kinnamont yes so have a listen to that if you want to hear a bit more on the topic um, that's all we've got time for this time that's all
0: we've got time for yeah. but
1: we'll see you in two weeks time
0: in two weeks time yeah in which we'll have some really really interesting <laughs> interviews for you again and uh, hopefully some news about a potential new series
1: Ooh. Ooh. Trail Which isn't that. really a surprise because we've sort of flagged it before.
0: I know, but we've not said when it's coming. That's true. That yeah, is true. Maybe.
1: In the meantime. I'm Ben Horton. I'm Agnes Frimston, and you've been listening to Undercurrent.